Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast with Pastor Joseph Gibson at Cranberry Community Church. We hope God speaks to your heart through today's message. Uh, I said it last week, and I'll say it again this week, uh, that I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that this might be the most relevant series that our church family has ever taken part in, uh, and that's because within these seven letters, we find God's attitude towards and his instructions for the local church. So the significance of this, uh, first of all, that we talked about last week is, is simply that, first of all, the local church matters to God. He sees the local church. He sees where, where it is, uh, what it's doing, and, and when it's doing well, he applauds it. Uh, but what we find in these letters is, and what we're really honing in on in this series is when God sees where the, the local church is lacking uh, in certain areas, He actually says to his church, if you can't get certain things fixed, I would rather you not exist. Uh, There are certain areas in the local church where God speaks to the church and says, uh, it's not that your good outweighs the bad. He says, if you can't get this fixed, in the long run, you will no longer exist. So last week, we began this series by looking at the letter to the first church, uh, which is the church in Ephesus. Uh, the letter to the Ephesian church is a prime example of what I'm talking about because what we, what we saw is they had great doctrine and they had great works. Uh, in modern days, you might call them a Bible-preaching, outreach-oriented church. That sounds great, right? I like to think of, of our church here as a Bible-preaching, outreach-oriented church. But what Jesus says to them is that they are a church, as he put it, that had left their first love. The first commandment to love God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength was being neglected. So Jesus said, return to the love you had at first. We have a church with good doctrine, a church with good works, but a church that neglects love. And Jesus didn't say, well, two out of three ain't bad. No, he he said, get it fixed or shut it down. That's how important loving God with all you have is. There is no substitute for loving God. Now, this is true of the church, and it's true of the believer. There is no substitute in your life for loving God. Your number one priority in life in your Christian walk is to cultivate your love for God. Now, what we didn't go into last week was something that we do find in Ephesus and we actually find in nearly every letter, and that is a a certain structure in each letter written to all four churches, uh, or all seven churches. It's four parts. uh, Each letter opens with Jesus introducing himself as some sort of title. Usually his title relates to the church he is writing to. After that comes a commendation, this is what you're doing well. Then comes a correction, this is what you need to fix. And then comes the promise of a reward if they remain faithful. There are a few exceptions to that structure, and the church that we're looking at today is one of those exceptions because today we're looking at one of two churches that have no correction given to them, and that's the church at Smyrna. So Smyrna is interesting uh, because biblically we have no knowledge of Smyrna outside of this letter. It's never mentioned in scripture, neither the church of Smyrna nor the city of Smyrna. Uh, However, most secular historians 
uh, or, or because of secular historians and the early church fathers in their writings, we actually know a ton about Smyrna itself. So I'm going to put the map up again just to show you. Uh, it's located 25 miles north of Ephesus. It's a location uh, that was called the Port of Asia. And most scholars believe that the church was planted there by Paul because of its uh, close proximity to Ephesus. But again, we don't know this for, cer for certain. We do know uh, that Smyrna was a large city. Uh, it, it was really second only to Ephesus in Asia Minor. Now that's modern day Turkey. Uh, and, and not only does this city still exist today, uh, today in Turkey, it's the third largest city uh, only it's no longer called Smyrna. Around 1930, they changed the name to Izmir, and we have a picture on the screen of Izmir of what it looks like today. Uh, so obviously it didn't look like that in biblical times, but that's what it looks like today. It's the third largest city in Turkey. Uh, Greg is going to put a couple more pictures up of what it, the, the ruins look like as I continue talking. Uh, so back to the ancient city of Smyrna. Um, all of this that I'm talking about is very relevant to the letter that we're going to read. You'll see that shortly. But the city itself was destroyed around 600 B.C. And then it was rebuilt under Alexander the Great in the 4th century B.C. And when they rebuilt the city of Smyrna, their goal was to make it the most beautiful city in Asia Minor. Uh, and in fact, this is really interesting. Uh, it is considered the first known planned community in the world, the entire world. The layout of the streets of Smyrna, when they, when they rebuilt it, they were laid out to funnel the wind just right. Uh, the water sources were strategically placed throughout the city. The streets were laid out on a grid, just like they would be today. I mean, it, it is incredible the thought that they put into rebuilding the city. Uh, it was this beautiful coastal city, and by the time we arrive at the letter that we're studying today, it had two very important factors in its favor. First, it was an extremely wealthy city. I, I mean, it was just known for its riches. Almost everyone there was wealthy. Second, uh, they were tight-knit with Rome. They were allies with Rome. Rome had, had their back, and they had Rome's back. Uh, but in, in modern terms you might call Smyrna a woke city uh, because they wanted to lead the way for every cause. They wanted to be out at the forefront of, of every cause. And, and uh, in fact, they became one of the first cities in the world to recognize something called the imperial cult. Uh, in 44 BC, following the death of Julius Caesar, the, the Roman state decided that when Caesars died, they should be remembered as gods, as deities. Smyrna, uh, a Roman ally and a woke city, was all over this. Uh, and in fact, in, in 26 AD, during the lifetime of Jesus, Smyrna built a massive temple that was dedicated to the worship of dead Roman emperors. Uh, they had many, many temples to Roman gods, but this was the largest. And, and I want you to hear this. They didn't just recognize Caesar as God. They made it illegal for you not to. Uh, they made it a law that every citizen had to burn incense to Caesar once a year and proclaim Caesar is Lord. And from what I could find this week as, as I'm studying, it was actually in Smyrna that it first became a capital offense punishable by death 
to not say that Caesar is Lord. I don't know if you heard what I just said. Rome didn't even enforce this, and Smyrna enforced it. If you don't say once a year that Caesar is Lord and burn incense to him, it's the death penalty. So Christians in the area were immediately ostracized. Everything was fair game. If they refused to profess that he was Lord, their homes could be uh, taken away, their jobs would be taken away, their possessions would be taken away, and if they still refused, ultimately their life would be taken away. And it's to believers that are living in these conditions that Jesus writes this letter uh, dealing directly with suffering and persecution, and in fact, it's the letter that we usually refer to as the letter to the persecuted church. Uh, So let's read it together. We're going to go kind of line by line this morning, uh, beginning in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. It says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. Remember I said he introduces himself differently and with relevance to every location that he writes. So to the church here that is risking their lives to follow Jesus, who it will cost their lives if they follow Jesus, Jesus says, hey, I'm the one who has authority over life. I'm the one who died and I rose again. At the very foundation of the letter, he speaks to the very topic that they're going to be facing. The threat of death may be real, but Jesus says the one that's writing you this letter is the one more powerful than death. He says in verse 9, I know your afflictions. Now the word here that's translated affliction, or your Bible might say tribulation, it literally means uh, to be pressed or to be crushed. Jesus says to to the church, I know that you are being uh, pressed, and and I know that you are being crushed. And this again is fascinating. I want you to see a connection here, uh, how God knew long before this all took place, he knew it was going to take place. Uh, uh, one of the gifts that the wise men brought to Jesus, they brought gold, frankincense, and what else? Myrrh, a, a spice called myrrh. Myrrh was an, a, a very, very fragrant spice. Uh, it was known for its overwhelming aroma. It was used to embalm bodies. Uh, but the interesting thing about myrrh is it basically gives off no fragrance whatsoever until it's crushed. Uh, it really doesn't produce anything until it's crushed. Only when it's crushed does it produce this this beautiful fragrance. So so you ask, what does that have to do with Smyrna? Uh, What I want to show you is the Greek word for myrrh. Uh, If you'll put that on the screen for me. So I have the English. It'll probably help you a little bit. Smyrna. The, the, The location of Smyrna was actually named after myrrh, after this spice that only after you, after you attempt to crush it does it begin to produce. And this name was given hundred, hundreds of years before all of this took place. But, but this is exactly what happens to Smyrna. Uh, the city attempts to crush the church, and it only produced more and more and more. And in fact, of the seven churches that we study, Smyrna is the only one that still exists. This is the church that most looked like it was on its way out, yet it's the only one that exists today. And by the way, they're still being persecuted by Muslims there, and yet as they are pressed, they continue to produce. We see this worldwide with the persecuted church. The more that they are pressed, the more that they are crushed, the more they grow. 
the, the persecuted church is growing far more rapidly than places like America where there is no persecution of the church. So back to verse 9, Greg. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. The word there for poverty, it's a unique word. It's only used three times in Scripture. It doesn't simply mean poor. It means to be reduced to the status of a beggar. It means you have nothing. And they're in this location, Smyrna, which is known for its wealth. So to choose to follow Jesus was actually to choose poverty in a city where everyone is rich. Because no one wants a Christian employee working for them. No one wants to buy goods from someone that they know is a Christian. They're taking everything that the Christians have away until the Christians have nothing to try to get them to deny their faith. But God says here, I see you have no money, no possessions. You're in abject poverty, yet you are rich. I think of James chapter 2, uh, where James writes, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who, he lo who love him? If we continue in verse 9, he says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. And then he says this, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, this was not a statement against Judaism as a whole. This was a, a, uh, a statement geared rather uh, specifically towards those who claim to be Jews uh, in Smyrna. Um, some of you are familiar with an early church uh, leader whose name was Polycarp. Uh, Poly Polycarp was actually the bishop uh, here in this location of Smyrna. He was a direct apostle or a direct disciple of John the Apostle, and he was martyred in Smyrna because he refused to reject his faith in Jesus Christ. But uh, there, are, there are a lot of writings that document his martyrdom. It took place in 155 AD. Um, uh, he was 86 years old. and He was arrested and bound. He was taken to a place where he would be burned alive. Uh, and when we read about the history of this moment, those who arrested him saw that he was an 86-year-old, frail old man, uh, and, and they didn't want to kill him, so they pleaded with him, what harm is there in simply just saying, Caesar is Lord? Just say it uh, and, and save yourself. Uh, but he told them no, and they became angry, so they led him to his place of execution. They tied him to the stake to be burned alive and gave him one final chance to reject Christ. Uh, and it's there to, that he said his famous last words. You've probably heard these before. I have them on the screen. Eighty and six years have I served him, and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? Now, according to, to the, the historical documents here, uh, the fire was lit, um, but the flames didn't touch him. Uh, the, the flames actually spread out away from him. So there's this fire surrounding him. He's not being harmed. So they actually ended up having to stab him and kill him with a sword in the midst of the fire, because the fire was doing nothing to him. Now, there's two reasons that I want to share this story with you. First is I want you to see an idea uh, of the persecution that the church was facing if you did not say that Caesar is Lord. Secondly, uh, back to what we're talking about here with the Jews being a synagogue of, of Satan, when we read about this moment in history, uh, what we find is that the Jewish people in Smyrna actually were excited to gather the wood to burn Polycarp. 
They hated Christianity. They hated everything about Christians. So when the Bible calls them a synagogue of Satan, it's because they were serving Satan's purpose. Again, this is not a statement against all of Judaism. This is how far gone they were uh, in Smyrna. On the verse 10, God says, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give your... uh, Give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. And if you go to the next uh, next one there back in verse 10, Greg. Uh, I said last week uh, that there are basically three levels that we want to look at these uh, these letters on. There's a historical level, there's a church level, and there's a personal level. And many would argue for a fourth level, which is the prophetic level. The prophetic level is the idea that each church represents an era in church history. So uh, I, I want to share this with you. Uh, I'm not convinced of the prophetic view, uh, but I'll show you why people see this. Uh, in this instance, uh, proponents of the prophetic view point there to where it says they're, they're persecuted for 10 days. Uh, and they say that, that this represents the fact that beginning with the emperor of this time, there were 10 consecutive emperors that were extremely hostile towards the Christian church. Uh, so the 10 days actually represents 10 emperors until the days of Constantine who uh, persecuted and killed uh, Christians, which ended in the 4th century. Now, I'll also tell you why I don't hold to this view. Uh, It's estimated that during that time frame, the first 300 years after the death of Christ, uh, the first 300 years, between 2 and 3 million Christians were martyred for their faith. That is an incredible, staggering number, 2 to 3 million Christians in the first 300 years. Uh, But I want to add to that, Gordon Conwell University released a study on Christian martyrdom. Uh, And they define Christian martyrdom uh, not just as Christians who die, but Christians who die prematurely in situations of witness. In other words, they died for their faith. They died for their desire to share their faith uh, or to hold on to their faith. And what they found is uh, from the death of Christ to the year 2000, approximately 70 million Christians have been martyred, killed for their faith from the time of Christ to the year 2000. 70 million. But... This is what they found. More than half of that 70 million have been killed in the last 120 years. More people have been killed for their faith in Jesus Christ in the last 120 years than in the 1900 years preceding it. So the reason that I don't believe that that this church represents an era that ended in the 4th century is because this letter specifically has been the most relevant letter out of all of them to tens of millions of believers and churches that are giving their lives through their faith even today. So what is it talking about the ten days? It could be the ten emperors. A lot of scholars say that this is an expression from the Old uh, Testament that just means a short period of time. Um, A lot of people point back to the book of Daniel. Uh, If you remember Daniel in in his life... uh, He was asked to eat at the king's table, but it was food that that Daniel saw as impure, and he felt that to eat the food would be idolatry. 
so he, he told uh, the king's servant, he said, give me 10 days. For 10 days, I'm not going to eat the king's food, and I'll show you that I'm every bit as healthy as, as all the others who are eating it. And Daniel chapter 1, verse uh, 14 says that he agreed to this and he tested them for 10 days, almost the same thing that Revelation says. Uh, he tested them for 10 days, and at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. It's very similar language to the passage in Revelation that we have these 10 days to go without participating in idolatry, and there's a crown of life waiting for them at the end. But whatever the case, almost everyone agrees that this 10 days... Uh, it meant basically this, this is temporary. Even if it ends in death, it's temporary. And that Jesus sees it and that he's in control. Uh, one more thing that I want to end this with this morning in Revelation chapter 2, again in verse 10. He writes, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. I want to focus on that. Do not be afraid. A better translation of this is actually stop being afraid. But he doesn't say stop being afraid because I'm coming to the rescue. He says stop being afraid because I see you and I'm with you. He doesn't say stop being afraid because I'm going to take all... I'm going to pull you out of that situation. He says, stop being afraid because it's going to be worth it. To suffer for 10 days is nothing compared to, to eternity and the eternal rewards. Uh, Renee, you, you can come if you would. Um, the reality is we don't see this persecution in the American church. Um, in America... We have hostility towards the church. Sometimes it's underlying hostility, but we're not in that place of persecution yet. I don't know how far off we are from persecution. Uh, I don't believe it's that far. But at the moment, we're in a place of persecution, I believe, uh, where there, there's this growing intolerance towards the church. Uh, if you don't think we live in a place where people are hostile to the church, uh, I would encourage you, to go on Facebook um, because about a week and a half ago a church in Franklin did a Facebook post that many of you know what I'm talking about speaking out against the witch walk that they had in Franklin and they spoke out against the, the, the celebration of witches and witchcraft and that they were bringing in a tarot card reader and do you know what happened? Everyone came and supported them. No. Thousands of people have blasted them. They have come out of the woodworks to blast the church because the church said a witch walk is bad. There is this underlying hostility towards the church and it rears its head every time you speak truth. We don't see this hostility all the time because we stay quiet most of the time. You know what the Bible says, 2 Timothy 3.12. This will encourage you. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that exciting?
I read something this week that they really stu stood out to me, and it simply said, you may never be asked to die a martyr's death, but we can all live a martyr's life. We can all live a life that, that lays down our desires, that lays down our flesh, lays down everything for the sake of the gospel and the truth in Jesus Christ. And I wonder, what, what are we afraid of when it comes to sharing our faith? It's so hard in the American church to share our faith when across the world people will get killed for it. How many of you are afraid if you share your faith with someone today, you'll die? We don't have to worry about that in America. Yet it's so hard for us. Because what if they say no? That's persecution to us. They say no when we share the gospel. Church, that's not persecution. Get over it. I like that. Jesus would say, don't fear. Stop being afraid. Not because you'll be received and accepted, but because it'll be worth it. It'll be worth it, church. Can, can you stand with me? Jesus would say to you this morning, don't fear speaking the truth with love, for I am with you. Don't fear sharing the gospel. Don't fear praying for the sick, for I am with you. Lord, my prayer this morning is that, is that you would embolden us, Lord, not to go to church, but to be the church. To take your presence with us everywhere we go. you to do something this morning, church. Something we did a few weeks ago, I want us to do it again, and I want this to be a house of prayer. So I'm going to ask you to gather in groups of three or five people. And I'm going to ask you to pray for the persecuted church. To pray for the millions this morning who can't gather. And if they can gather, they can't do it safely. To pray that we would have a boldness to, to share the gospel. This is the good news, church. Renee plays and sings, I'm going to ask you just to gather in small groups for a few moments and let's lift up the persecuted church. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for a new message every single week. And as always, from all of us at Cranberry Community Church, may God bless you.